Hi folks, this is Glenn, your host for episode 9 of the podcast for MSMUCHE1A Chemistry Online of the summer 2017. In episode 8, I was in a lift going to my other job, and this episode, number 9, I'm in another lift with the nice driver Lamont going home from the other job. I know you are probably driving home or driving to work right now, so we can commute together. Next part of what I'm going to tell you about is types of chemical reactions. Now, this is not going to be in the first web assign that's due. They're all due on Saturday, but I think you're going to hit this somewhere in the second web assign. Um, I might be wrong about that, though, but you are going to hit it first type of reaction that appears in the book on page 178 is the precipitation reaction. I told you a little bit about the precipitation reaction in episode 8 because the best way to describe the the precipitation reaction is with the complete ionic equation and with the net ionic equation. Writing those equations down will help you to understand exactly what happens in a precipitation reaction. And remember, most important part of the precipitation reaction is that a solid forms, and you need to know how to identify who is the solid that forms. Let me show you how that's done. When you have two reactants, let's say, let's go back to the example that I used in episode 8, the uh, sodium chloride, NaCl, and the lead nitrate, the PbNO32. You need to be able to predict what's going to happen. Now, in episode 8, I told you how to figure out that PBCL2, the product, is solid. I told you exactly how you should figure out that PBCL2 is the solid that forms, the solid whose formation actually drives the reaction. It makes the reaction go. Now I'm going to tell you how to even arrive at the combination of PBCL2 in the first place. All right, so you've got NaCl when you write the molecular chemical equation, you've got NaCl, Aq, plus PbNO32, Aq, and then you draw the arrow. So what comes next? What comes next is PbCl2, but how do you know that? Remember that the Na is the positive ion in NaCl. The Pb is the positive ion in PbNO32. Those positive ions are going to switch partners. Na has its partner as the negative ion, Cl. Pb has as its partner the negative ions, NO3. In fact, it has two of them. We're going to switch partners. So the Na is now going with the NO3. The Pb is now going with the Cl. That's how you figure out what's going to happen in the chemical reaction. So I've switched partners, so now I have NaCl, plus PbNO32, Aq, and the arrow, and uh, PbCl2, Aq, plus NaNO3, Aq. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how did I get that 2 at the end of PbCl2? You need the 2 there because the Pb is a 2 plus ion. You know that the Pb is a 2-plus ion 
if you write the complete ionic equation for this chemical reaction. I've been using the molecular equation just out of convenience, it's just briefer. But if you use, if you write down the complete ionic equation as explained in episode 8, uh, you'll see that the lead is PB2 plus because it has two NO3 minuses on it. Alright, so once you know that the lead is PB2 plus, you can easily know that it's got to be PBCl2 if you're going to put Cl on that PB. And that's because Cl is a 1 minus ion. If you have a chloride ion and you're trying to stick it to a lead ion, a PB2 plus ion, you're going to need two of them because the total charge has to add up to zero. Nature is not going to let you make a solid that has a charge unless that charge is zero. So that's how you know it's PBCl2. So once you know that's PBCl2, the other thing, of course, is NaNO3. And you look on the solubility chart that's on page 179. Such a chart will be provided on your quiz or your exam. You look on that solubility chart and fi to figure out if PBCl2 dissolves in water, is soluble, or if it falls out of the solution as a solid or precipitates. It's insoluble. In episode 8, we found that PBCl2 is insoluble, so it forms a solid, and that's what drives this reaction. This is called a precipitation reaction. This thing where we change partners, you know, to figure out that we get PBCl2 and we get NaNO3, this changing partners thing, this is called double displacement or double replacement. You can see some animation of this on YouTube by searching for double displacement reaction or double replacement reaction. It is not the case that all double displacement or double replacement reactions are precipitation reactions. Some of these end up being um, reactions where water is formed. Forming water is very likely in a chemical reaction because nature likes to form water. The reason why nature likes to form water is because water is a low chemical potential energy substance. So, um, nature will produce a solid if you have two water solutions. Two solutions dissolved in water mixed together, nature will produce a solid if she can. If she cannot, she'll produce more water if she can. If she cannot, she'll produce gas if she can. Actually, gas is the first thing she'll try to produce. So if gas can be produced, uh, it will be produced. Alright, so that's um, the precipitation reaction. The next type of reaction is on page 181 in your textbook, and it is the acid-base reaction. There are two kinds of acid-base reactions. There's just the acid-base reaction where acid or base is dissolved in water. That is, an, uh, that is an actual chemical reaction. And there is also the type where an acid and base are mixed together. That is a neutralization reaction. The neutralization reaction is an example of a double displacement or double replacement reaction which forms water. The formation of water is the reason why the neutralization reaction works because nature just wants to form water. If nature can form water, nature is going to form water. This is the whole reason why there's so much water on the planet. Anytime there's a chemical reaction, if nature can form water, she'll do it. So, with, let me go start back with the uh, acid, the, the first kind of acid-base reaction, where you mix an acid or a base with water. HCl is a common acid, hydrochloric acid. By the way, there's a list of acids and their names in the textbook. It's on page 183. 
HCl is hydrochloric acid. This is the same acid that's in your stomach. You use that to break down proteins and other bits of your food into smaller molecules. When the HCl gets produced in your stomach, it is produced with water. And the water in your stomach mixes with the HCl to produce chloride ions and something that we call hydronium. Hydronium is just H3O+. It's water with an extra H plus on it. So in this chemical reaction, the H separated from HCl to form H plus. The Cl separated from HCl to form Cl minus. The Cl minus is just floating around, and the H plus is either floating around or combines with some water molecule to form H3O plus. Now, you can't have just pure Cl minus or pure H3O plus just by themselves. So these are both dissolved in water. The chemical equation for this process would be like HCl, AQ, plus H2O, AQ, and then the arrow, Cl minus, AQ, plus H3O plus, AQ. Notice the charges. If you look at the reactant side, there are no charges. If you look at the product side, there's a negative charge and there's a positive charge. The charges add up to zero on the product side. That's how it has to be. The charges, whether it's zero or something that's not zero, they have to add up to the same number on the product side as on the reactant side. So when you dissolve a base in water, it's much the same, except instead of uh, an H plus ion going and combining with the water, in the case of a base, an OH minus ion is formed from water. So an H plus ion leaves water and stick to something else, so you end up with an OH minus ion. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, ammonia. Ammonia is the smelly stuff in Windex. Not the sweet smelling stuff, that's just a fragrance, but the, 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 the foul smelling stuff in Windex, that's the ammonia. I think, uh, I think some hairstylists still use ammonia to curl your hair if, if you're getting a permanent curl to your hair. But anyways, ammonia is NH3 and this is a base. When you add it to water, an H from the water falls off of the water and sticks to the NH3. So now you have NH4, but that H left its electron behind. So you have H plus sticking to NH3, so it's really NH4 plus. We call that ammonium with the UM at the end instead of an A. But what about that water that lost its H plus? It is now OH minus. It lost an H plus, so now it's OH minus. We call this the hydroxide ion. I think you knew that from um, a couple weeks ago. So the chemical equation for dissolving this base in water is NH3, AQ, plus H2O, L for liquid, makes, or the arrow, NH4 plus AQ, plus OH minus AQ. It is not the case that all bases are like that. It is the case that all bases will produce OH minus in water. So how can a base produce OH minus in water if it's not going to steal an H plus ion from a water molecule? I mean, that's how we produce OH minus here. The way this works with other bases is uh, just by 
dissolving in water. So Drano. Drano is mostly sodium hydroxide. That's the active ingredient. Sodium hydroxide is a very strong base. Oh, we're passing by a some kind of chemical manufacturing plant. It's a Bud Light Brewery. Wow. Anyway, sorry, back to the back to the lesson here. NaOH, sodium hydroxide. This stuff is a strong base. When you add water to it, or when you add it to water, the sodium separates from the hydroxide. So you get Na plus and OH minus. You notice we didn't have to rip off any H pluses from the H2O, from, from water molecules. We didn't have to touch the water molecules at all because the OH minus is already in the NaOH molecule or, 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 or compound. So when they separate in water, you automatically get OH minus. It's that OH minus, it's the hydroxide ions that are freely floating in the water. That's what causes a base to be a base. So I've been throwing around these words, acid and base, and I haven't haven't really described to you the differences or what they even are. Acids are things with a certain set of chemical chemical properties dissolved in water. Is it always dissolved in water? Yes. For all practical purposes, for you and for me, acids are things that behave a certain way in water. And there are there are forms of acids that are not dissolved in water, but they have other chemical properties that are different from chemical properties I'm about to describe to you here. So for our purposes, an acid is always something dissolved in water, and it always acts in the following way. H plus ions will fall off of that molecule, and they will join with water to make H3O plus, or hydronium. That is a chemical property of any acid. If it's an acid, that's what it does. Lemon juice, it's an acid. H plus ions fall off of the molecules in lemon juice, and they join with water to make H3O plus. That's what an acid is. Another couple of properties of an acid, of any acid, is that it tastes sour. Why does it taste sour? It's because of those H plus ions falling off of those acid molecules. That's why. They hit your tongue, or actually the H3O plus ions, which came from the H plus and water, they hit your tongue, and your tongue interprets that as sour. Uh, something else that H plus, I mean, something else that acids do well, another thing that acids do is they react with a base to form new water molecules. That's what they do. If you add an acid to a base, you're going to get a water molecule. So those are a couple of chemical properties that really define what acids are for all practical purposes. What about bases? Bases are special chemicals, just as special as acids, in that they have a certain set of chemical properties, and they are. Bases will produce OH- oxide ions in water, either by ripping off an H plus from a water molecule or just by dissolving water. I mean, if they come with their own OH minus ions, then all they have to do is dissolve. So that's the first chemical property for a base. The next chemical property for a base, common to all bases, is if you touch them with your fingers and rub your fingers together, they'll slippery. Why? It's because the base is turning the fat in your skin dangerous? Well, it's dangerous if you have a lot of base in a concentrated solution on your fingers. You can just wipe off your fingerprints that way, and it's, you're going to feel that. Yeah, it's going to feel, kind of, it's going to burn a little bit. So uh, that, 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 that can cause you uh, some, some pretty severe damage to your skin. 
But most of the time, we don't encounter bases at that strength or at that concentration. Most of the time, we encounter weak bases. The other chemical property of bases is that when you taste them, they will taste bitter. Yes, that's right. Have you ever uh, chewed on some herb? Or even better, have you ever let your tea bag sit in your hot water for too long? Yeah. After you do that for too long, you just let the teas, let the tea leaves soak in there hours and hours and hours. When you drink that tea, it may taste a little more bitter than you'd like it to taste. That bitterness comes from some compounds that happen to be basic coming from the tea. Right, so those are the ways that you can tell the difference in your mind between an acid and a base. And um, there is some, there's one more thing that's kind of important that I need to tell you is that the strength of acid is the strength of base. So there are strong acids and there are weak acids. There are about six strong acids in the universe and there are a whole bunch of weak acids. In your body, you make a stage scale that is a strong acid. You also make a whole bunch of weak acids. The word strong and the word weak when you are using acids and bases have nothing to do with the concentration of that acid It has also nothing to do with how dangerous or hazardous the material is. For example, the acid in your stomach is a strong acid. However, your stomach is not damaged by it. If I drink a highly concentrated solution of a weak acid, then I will die. For example, uh, acetic acid. If I drink very concentrated solution of acetic acid, I will die. But acetic acid is a weak acid. My body produces a strong acid. Makes it out. Why would I die if I drink it? It's because of the concentration. The word strong and the word weak have nothing to do with uh, what you and I would think of as strong and weak. These are technical terms, just in general. The word strong for an acid means that that acid is going to dissolve completely in water, separate completely into H plus ions and whatever negative ions it is. Right? That's what the word strong means. The word weak means that that acid is not going to dissolve completely. Some of the acid is going to stay in its molecular form, H still attached, and some other molecules of that acid are going to separate into H plus ion and whatever else. Does it have an odor? Oh, yeah. So, the reason why vinegar has an odor is because the whole vinegar molecule can figure it out as a gas. That's why you can smell it, even if you're not even touching the, 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 the liquid vinegar. So, that whole vinegar molecule has the H plus ion still stuck on the molecule. That's why it's a gas. Under ordinary conditions, you can't have a gas that is charged. You can't have a positive charge or a negative charge. So, why is vinegar an acid? It's a weak acid because some of the vinegar molecules will separate into H plus and the acetate ion, the rest of the vinegar molecule. The, 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 the subset or the minority of molecules in vinegar that do separate, those molecules are causing the sour taste and uh, the other chemical property of, uh, of, of vinegar. Uh, the H plus separates out and it can combine with water to make H3O. That's why vinegar is an acid. 
but the majority of the vinegar molecules are not doing that. The majority of the vinegar molecules are just giving the aroma of vinegar, and um, meaning they, they are not separate. They are whole. The H plus man does not fall. So this is why vinegar is a weak acid. It's because of that lack of separation. Okay, it's the same story with bases. So if you if you have a base, let's say ammonia again, NH3. This is a weak base. Why? It's because some ammonia molecules don't rip off the H plus from water to become um, NH4 plus ammonia and to produce the OH minus ion from the water molecule. Some ammonia molecules don't do that. I mean, a lot of them do, and that's why ammonia is a base. But some of them don't, and that's why you can smell ammonia. Those molecules that don't rip off the H plus from water, those are free to evaporate into the air. They are not charged. They're just NH3. And when they go up your nose, you smell that, and it could hurt if there are too many of them. All right, so that's the story with acids and bases. Now, the next type of reaction is going to be a little difficult. Uh, it is the oxidation reduction reaction. Now, this is something very new to you, probably. Uh, the word oxidation and the word reduction are a couple more technical terms in chemistry. It is not the case that when something is oxidized in chemistry, it combines with oxygen. I mean, it often is. If you react something chemically with oxygen, yeah, you're oxidizing it. But in chemistry, the word oxidation has become generalized to refer to any chemical reaction where something loses electrons, some atom loses electrons. That is automatically called oxidation. This is for historical reasons. Uh, I am not sure exactly what those reasons are, but uh, chemistry is full of these weird terminology uh, situations because of the history of chemistry. Chemistry is an old science that really started when people were trying to turn lead into gold, and they were mucking about with chemicals, not really knowing what's going on. So some, some words, such as oxidation, have been stuck to certain chemical processes that uh, don't really respond to the common everyday meaning of, of, of that word. But anyways, oh, there's some axe on the other side of the freeway. Did I mention that I'm in this nice lift ride? This is a great ride, by the way. So, oxidation and reduction reactions. Um, in these chemical reactions, electrons change hands. So one of the reactants loses electrons, and the other reactant gains electrons. That's why it's called oxidation reduction. The guy that loses the electrons, that guy is getting oxidized. Oxidation is happening there. The guy that gains electrons, that guy is getting reduced. Reduction is happening there. Okay, these are technical terms. You can remember these using this little gimmick, oil rig. O-I-L for oil, R-I-G for rig. O-I-L stands for oxidation is losing. Talking about electrons. Oxidation is losing electrons. R-I-G stands for reduction is gaining. We're still talking about electrons. Reduction is gaining electrons. Okay? Now, it's easy to figure out who is gaining electrons and who is losing electrons if you have an ionic compound being formed. So, Na, solid, 
plus Cl2 gas produces NaCl. In this chemical reaction, there's solid sodium metal. This is not salt. This is pure sodium metal. You cannot find this in a store or in the ground. This is, you have to use a lot of energy if you want to produce pure sodium metal. Okay. Pure sodium metal plus chlorine gas, pure chlorine gas. You cannot buy this in the store. Uh, pure chlorine gas. If you combine them, they will explode. And after they explode, you'll end up with NaCl, which is just common table salt. So, you know that NaCl is made of the Na plus ion and the Cl minus ion. So it's obvious that the sodium, the pure sodium metal in this chemical reaction, lost an electron. And the chlorine, the pure chlorine gas in this chemical reaction, gained an electron to, to make Na plus, where the electron was lost, and Cl minus, where the electron was gained. So the result is NaCl, uh, this compound that we just use as table salt. So who got oxidized here? That's right. Um, the loss of electrons, oxidation is losing, that happened with the sodium. So the sodium got oxidized. Who got reduced here? Where did the reduction happen? That's right. Chlorine became Cl minus, so it gained an electron. Reduction is gaining. That's not hard to figure out. But um, what about if there is no ionic compound that forms? What if there's a chemical reaction that forms a molecule and there are no ions, there are no charges? How are you going to figure out where the electrons went? Who gained electrons and who lost electrons? For this reason, we have something called oxidation states, or oxidation numbers. These are imaginary charges. We assign these imaginary charges to the atoms of a molecule that is not an ionic compound. We only do this to keep track of where the electrons went. That's the only reason why we do this. Okay. Now, um, let, me, let me explain by using an example. If you take some pure hydrogen gas and some pure oxygen gas and give them a little spark, you will make water. And the chemical equation for that, if we use it, is H2G plus O2G produces arrow H2O, L, alpha liquid. Now, if you, uh, of course, if you balance the equation, it's going to be 2H2. G plus O2 G produces 2 H2O L. Now, in this chemical equation, there are no ions. There are no ionic compounds. Pure hydrogen gas is a molecule. There are no ions. Pure oxygen gas, it is a molecule. There are no ions. Pure water, liquid, it is a molecule. There are no ions. By the way, um, the sound quality here has improved because I am no longer in the lift ride. Now, uh, how can you determine where the electrons have changed hands? How can you determine who has given electrons to whom in such a situation when there are no charges? Well, the way to do that is by following a few simple rules. All right, the first rule is if you have a pure element just the element by itself, and there is no charge, then the oxidation state, or the oxidation number, will be zero for H2 gas. It's just hydrogen. 
I mean, there are two of them, but still, they're both just hydrogen. So the oxidation state for H in H2 is zero. So there's uh, the, the, both H's have the oxidation state of zero. Now, what about the oxygen, the O2? The O2 is the same story. It's a pure element. There's no other element there, just oxygen. So the oxidation state for the O2, or, or for each of the O's in the O2, is zero. Now, that is the first rule. The second rule is if you have oxygen in the molecule mixed with something else, then the oxygen will take the oxidation state of the charge that it would usually have. Right? So if you look at oxygen on the periodic table, it is two steps away from the end on the right. That means as an ion, the oxide ion would have a 2 minus charge. Now, using that information directly, I can assign the oxidation state for the oxygen in H2O. I can assign that oxidation state as negative 2. There is a little um, convention here, a little politeness or a style that the chemists all use, and that is when we write the charge of an ion, we put the minus or the plus sign after the number. So in the case of oxygen, it would be 2 minus, that's the charge of the oxide ion. But when we're writing the oxidation state, because that is not really a charge, because that is just a way of accounting for where the electrons probably went in a chemical reaction, we put the plus or minus sign in front of the number. So the oxidation state for the oxygen in H2O, the molecule, that oxidation state is negative 2, minus 2. Don't worry, this is all explained in the textbook also. Right? Now, uh, what about the hydrogen in the water? The hydrogen in the water is, uh, there are two hydrogens in water, so since water is a neutral molecule, the oxidation state of the oxygen, negative 2, needs to be counteracted by the oxidation states of the hydrogen. Since there are two hydrogens, those must be plus 1 each. So plus 1 for one hydrogen and plus 1 for the other hydrogen. That's how you calculate the oxidation states, folks. There is uh, one additional rule. Um, the additional rule is with hydrogen. In the case of water, the oxidation state was plus one. That's usually what it's, what it's going to be. But when you have a case where hydrogen is attached to a metal, such as um, sodium hydride, or um, such as in a nickel metal hydride rechargeable battery, that hydrogen is going to have an oxidation state, or even a charge, of negative 1. If it's an oxidation state, it'll be negative 1. If it's a charge, it'll be 1 minus. Okay? So, those are the three main rules. Um, pure elements have oxidation state of 0, and um, anything else, if it's a non-metal, it's going to have an oxidation state that is the same as the charge it would uh, that it would normally have. And then um, if it's hydrogen, if it's hydrogen bonded to a metal, that is going to have a negative one instead of a positive one. And there is a hint. So th those are the three main rules. There is a hint here that I need to give you. Sometimes you, you might encounter 
an ion or a molecule that has a bunch of nonmetals in there. So what do you do in that case? Um, let's have a look at the chlorate ion. The chlorate ion is a molecule. It is ClO3 minus. Okay, ClO3 minus. So I have two nonmetals there, Cl and O. These oxidation states for the Cl and for the three Os, they need to add up to, not zero in this case, because this is a polyatomic ion. They need to add up to the charge of the ion. The chloride ion is ClO3 minus. So the oxidation states of the Cls and the Os need to add up to negative one, or one minus. All right, now let's figure out how that's going to happen. I have a Cl and I have three O's. The first thing you need to do, this is a huge hint, folks, you need to do the oxygen first, okay? And the reason is oxygen in nature is just very likely to become a negative ion, much more so than the other elements. So we'll look at the oxygen first and then we'll use arithmetic, just uh, we use subtraction and addition to figure out what the oxidation state of the chlorine is going to be. So the oxygen is negative 2. We know that already. And there are three of them. So the total oxidation state for all the oxygens combined is negative 6. Negative 6. That means the chlorine is going to be positive 6, except for the fact that we need to add up to a charge of negative 1 here instead of 0. So the chlorine is going to be positive 5. So the oxidation state of the chlorine is positive 5. The, ox the oxidation state of each oxygen there is negative 2. 5 plus negative 6 is negative 1. So that's the, uh, that's, that's the total charge of this polyatomic ion. So did you get that, folks? You, if you have a molecule or some ion or something, you need to work on the oxygen first if it appears. Assume the oxygen is negative 2. If you do that consistently, you're going to have the right answer. Right? The chlorines, you know, sometimes they do weird things. They're ClO minus, they're ClO2 minus, they're ClO3 minus. The, oxy the, oxygen, sorry, the oxidation state of the chlorine is highly variable. But for oxygen, it's just, it's just negative 2. Are there some cases when the oxygen is not negative 2? Yes, there are, but those are very few. Um, one example is hydrogen peroxide. Whenever the molecule is peroxy or peroxide, something like that, the oxygen is in a special unstable state. Uh, it is the oxidation state of negative one. This, it, it is unstable. The, the, the meaning, uh, what I mean by unstable is that molecule is not going to last that long just sitting by itself. It's going to try to react with something else in order to get the oxidation state of negative two on, that ox on the oxygen atoms instead of negative one. This is why hydrogen peroxide is so reactive. You know, it bleaches hair, kills germs, uh, stuff like that. So that is how to assign oxidation states, folks. And I'm going to turn to this, the relevant section in Chapter 4 again. It's around the neighborhood of page um, 177, 78, 180, something like that, because there is a special use for oxidation states that you're going to encounter in the web assign. Right, so over here, it's on page 185, oxidation reduction reactions. You 
um, have a little example on page 186 of how to assign oxidation numbers, what I've just done here in the podcast. And um, you, you, uh, have, you, you have on page 189 a section called Balancing Redox Reactions via the Half-Reaction Method. This, folks, is, is not easy. This is just pretty hard. Uh, I'm going to reserve this for the next episode of the podcast. So that will be episode 10. Thanks, folks. Bye.